salams and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast with your hosts, me, Yasmin Lee and Zara Chowdhury. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication dedicated to travel, culture and history from a Muslim perspective. In this series, we'll be talking to writers, artists, historians and a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum everyone, it's just me solo this week. In this episode, I speak to Mustafa Briggs about the history of Islam in West Africa. Mustafa is a speaker and a student specialising in West African Islam and has delivered lectures at numerous universities on the subject. We talk about the roots of Islam in the region, the rise of Timbuktu and other intellectual centres of learning, as well as Sufi tariqas and the empowerment of women through scholarship that can be seen throughout West African history. So before we get onto the topic, Mustafa, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and what your background is. Okay, so um, my name is Mustafa Briggs. Um, originally from, well, I'm born and raised in London, but originally from my father's Nigerian and my mother's Gambian and Sierra Leonean with some Senegalese ancestry as well. And um, I studied, how I got into this field, what's relevant to this um, interview is that I studied Arabic and international relations with um, my thesis focusing on the history of Arabic literature and literacy in West Africa. And um, yeah, and then I started a master's at SOAS um, doing translation with specialization in Islamic texts. And then I stopped that and I'm now currently enrolled in Al-Azhar University. I'm going to study Sharia and Arabic. Um, And I, yeah, throughout my time before university and throughout university, um, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to study and travel throughout Muslim West Africa, Senegal, Gambia, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Mauritania, um, and meet, and I'm very close to a lot of the shiuch there, and I've met a lot of the prominent figures in, you know, Islamic scholarship out there, and spent time with them. And um, last year, due to all of this, I started to be invited to panel sessions and give talks at different universities. Like I did Oxford University, I did York, I did Manchester, I did about six universities in total last year, mm. plus some TV interviews. I was on Islam Channel twice and some radio interviews and some online interviews. And then that led to me kind of formulating, and I did, yeah, an Al Jazeera interview. And that led to kind of me formulating, decided to formulate this year a a lecture series or a university talk called Beyond Bilal, um, speaking about the history of Islam, black history in Islam, and the history of Islam in in Africa, more specifically West Africa, because that's my focus point. And um, alhamdulillah, I've been booked at over twenty. Well, I've been booked at twenty universities. Wow. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be delivering this presentation at twenty, like Westminster, Reading, Liverpool, Kings, UCL, Oxford, Cambridge, Leicester, Bradford. Like, yeah, there's a whole list. LSE. Um, so yeah, alhamdulillah, that's that's, that's amazing. You're like that's more me. than qualified for this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try. I try. I try. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So I think. Um, I have to admit, when I think of West African history, my mind always goes to Timbuktu first. Um, yeah. So I think of Timbuktu, Mali Empire, things like that. But then 
that was in the 14th century. So there's a whole load of history before that, that I have to Mm. admit, I don't know much about. Um, So maybe could you give us, I know it's a huge question, (laughs) but maybe could you give us like a brief overview of how Islam first reached West Africa? Like, was it through North Africa or how exactly did that happen? Yeah, it was through North Africa. So, I mean, the fact that you even know Timbuktu is an achievement because a lot of people are, don't even know that much. They, they they, can't really tell you about the history of Islam in West Africa or they don't even know that West Africa is a majority Muslim, yeah, Muslim population. But um, Islam reached West Africa in the 10th century. So, like, the early, yeah, the 10th century, the 900s onwards, so about two, three hundred years after the Prophet. That's actually really early. Yeah, and that's West Africa, because obviously, we know, in East Africa, Islam was established and there was a Muslim community in East Africa before it was established in Mecca or Medina, because the first Hijra was to Abyssinia. But yeah, in in West Africa, it was in the 10th century. So it's been, Islam has been around for over a thousand years. Um, And the first people that were known to have converted to Islam, how Islam entered was through the trade interactions of what was known as the Ghana Empire in those days and Takrur Empire. So there were two major empires. Most people talk about Ghana, but there was also an empire in Senegal called Takrur. So the Ghana Empire was situated in southern Mauritania and Mali and Senegal, like that kind of area. Mm. Um, it was an ancient empire. Some of their oral historians said that the, um, the empire... They had 20 kings before the time of the Prophet and 20 kings after the time of the Prophet so you can see it was like a long it yeah. was a long spanning empire And um, but the, the king that was known to have converted in I think it was 1046 was called Kaya Maga Sise so he's like if you hear the word name Sise he's one of the ancestors of the Sise family oh, okay. he was the yeah, they were the kings of the Ghana empire at that time and um, he welcomed North Africans into trade because the Ghana Empire was rich in gold. They used to trade gold. They used to trade salt. They used to trade fabrics. And he set up, they set up their city. So even before they became Muslim, they set up their city in a way where the city had a Muslim quarter. Like I think it was Ibn Khaldun who traveled, traveled to the Ghana Empire. He described that the king's capital had a Muslim section and a non-Muslim section. And within the Muslim section, there were 12 masjids and a Jum'ah mosque. And, you know, people were settling yeah. in, Arab so traders that, from that the north. that was before the rulers themselves turned, became Muslim? That was, yeah, that was before they, they, they themselves became Muslim. They were inviting the Muslims in to trade with them and interacting with them and seeing, you know, their culture. And I think a lot of the, the, the thing that fueled people to become Muslim was the upper classes saw it as an opportunity to, you know, to globalize, to expand their networks. They learned how to read and write Arabic and trade and further trade with the Muslims. And they were also impressed by, you know, their characteristics, their lifestyle. And so it was the king, Kaya Magasise, and some of his his, his, um, his ministers, etc., who decided to become Muslim. And then when the people in the lower echelons of society started to see that all the upper class people were becoming Muslim, then they also started to convert. And That's then, really interesting because yeah. I always thought it happened the other way around. Like the lower echelons, they become Muslim first and it slowly nah, makes its way up. Yeah, usually in other societies, that how it ha- that's how it happened. But in West Africa, it was the rich traders, the kings, the noble people, the important people who, mm. through interaction with these guests, decided to become Muslim. And then people followed them in that and, you know, adopted the positive aspects of Muslim culture, such as, you know, the Arabic alphabet, 
which they developed into what we call Ajami, to read and write their own languages, local languages. They started to study Quran. And people, like non-Muslims, would even send their children to Quran schools to learn how to read and write. And then the children would end up becoming Muslim through that. So there was all that going on. So you have this Ghana empire um, around the same time. You also have the Takrul empire, the king of the Takrul empire, Warjabi, also converted to Islam. And that was in Senegal. That was in northern Senegal. So, yeah, you can see Islam entering the region around that time. Oh, that's really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. Going back to Timbuktu, because um, like you said, often people don't really know much about it. Or if if they do, it's kind of seen as this mythical place, like it's not real or something. Um, <laughs> but I actually, I really love reading about um particularly like in the 14th century when it became um, like an intellectual centre and people, scholars would come from everywhere in order to learn there um, and all the rest of it. But then I think I remember you you mentioned once that it's actually not the only um, centre in that regard. Like there were other centres at the time that achieved similar things. Um, yes. Can you maybe talk to us a bit about that? Okay, so the Timbuktu um, University... Um, which was, I think it was called the Sankore Institute, was established by the... So the, after the Ghana Empire fell, one of their vassal states was the um, Mali, um, Mali Kingdom, which through their leader, Sunjata Keita, who also converted to Islam, um, according to some oral traditions, he converted according to other oral traditions, he was a descendant of Bilal. So there's difference of opinion on that. But most people say he actually converted. Um, he... He took over the 12 surrounding kingdoms that of the Mali kingdom. So there were 12 kingdoms that made up the Mali empire. And so he became the emperor. And his descendants were Mansa Musa, who was the famous you know, king of gold, mm. the one who was the on the Forbes list. Yeah, richest <laughs> man in history, richest man that ever lived is one of his descendants. Um, and so they were the ones responsible for establishing the university in Timbuktu. So it was essentially it was a mosque. It was a masjid at first, and then it expanded into them teaching Islamic okay. studies, and then onwards from that. Because they were saying they were saying that the most profitable trade in the Mali Empire at that time was trade of books. People were very thirsty for knowledge, and so wow. Arabs would come in from the Middle East and North Africa and everywhere and bring in books. Um, to trade and books were just as expensive as gold or salt or like the most valuable things at the time and it was the most traded they were the most traded item and so people started to learn and teach not just islamic sciences but you know psychology astrology medicine you had people doing like eye cataract operations in 14th century west africa timbuktu who were graduates from this university and there were even scholars that came in from North Africa. So like the other centers of learning that were around at the time were like the Karawin in Fez and Al-Azhar in Cairo and um, Karawan in Tunis. And there was one scholar I remember that came, there was a a report where a scholar came from Fez to teach in, in, in Timbuktu. And he said when he reached Timbuktu, he realized that the level of learning there was so high, he had to go back to Fez to study more in order to be able to enroll wow. in the schools in Mali to become a student. That's <laughs> so, yeah, so around that time, so it wasn't just Timbuktu, though, that the Mali Empire had other centers of learning that were going on simultaneously in Jene, in all different kind of cities around the area. 
But okay. those were the main. And then later on, you see other Islamic intellectual centers form. So like in Nigeria, you had uh, Kano and Borno. In northern Nigeria, you had uh, Sokoto, you had Kano. In Senegal, you had Koki, you had... Um, and then later on in the 18th century, you had like Tuwa, Tiwawa, Medina Bay forming in the 20th century, etc. But yeah, but the origin of those was in the Mali Empire. Then you also had the Mahdara system, which was in Mauritania, which still lasts today. So like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf studied in the Mahdara, for example, Murabit al Hajj, all those people. That's a, that's also an ancient tradition. That's like a, I could say a 800 to 900 year old tradition. Shinkit was a center of learning around that same time. Um, yeah, but it's, Timbuktu was obviously the most prominent. Right, but I was going to say, I mean, like all these things you mentioned, you mentioned certain things that are still happening today and they have such a long history. But why do you think it is that most Muslims, I would say in Britain, don't really know about that? Like people are aware of Fez, they know its history, um, they know about the Karaween, but the same can't really be said of these institutions in West Africa. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's more about, I think mostly it's about, number one, the demographic of the Muslims in the UK. So I feel like a lot of Muslims in the UK, and you can't blame them for this, but they're from either Arab or Asian backgrounds. There's mm. a strong, there is a big, sizable African Muslim population, but the majority of Muslims that we know, we see are from Arab and Asian backgrounds. So they'll only know what's relevant to their history or their culture. Right. And then there's also this, um, I wouldn't say an Arab superiority complex, but people obviously, when they think of Islam, they think of Arabs, so they look, when they come out of their own culture, they look yeah. to Arabs to see, okay, well, what are the Arabs doing? And the Arab centers of learning are obviously Egypt, Morocco, etc. Um, like Mauritania, people never really knew. It was it was the best, I would say it's the best kind of system in Africa, the Mauritanian system. Like there's even a joke between the Azharis and the Mauritanians where a scholar from Egypt, Azhar, met a scholar from Mauritania and they were arguing over who are, who's a better scholar. And then the Mauritanian scholar said, you you guys are better during the daytime and we're better at nighttime. Because in the daytime, you can open your books and read them. Whereas in the nighttime, when you can't open your books and read them, we memorize everything we study. So we're oh. better than you. Oh. So they have, that, they have that report. But people didn't really know about Mauritania until Hamza Yusuf went and studied there and brought it back to the yeah. West and exposed the West. I think it's just about exposure. But I feel like now due to you know interest and social media people are starting to realize that oh wow there's a strong um islamic tradition in west africa there's a strong yeah. lineage of scholarship and people want to know so like my tour for example i've been booked at 20 universities i never had to approach a single university i just made my poster and i said yeah i'm able to offer this 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 lecture about the history of islam in africa and they all started emailing me and trying to book me in. So you can see that there is a drive of yeah, people. Yeah, there's like an interest for it. There's, an, there's a really big interest. People do want to know and they do want to discover. So I think it's just right. about timing as well. Um, I have to say, I've noticed on Instagram, maybe over the last year or so, about um, there's there are so many more posts about like Senegal, Medina Bay, places yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. would you say i i personally would say you're kind of partly responsible for that because <laughs> i know yeah. a few people who i didn't know um that they knew you but they had they've been because of you so yeah yeah i would say yeah i'm i'm alhamdulillah yeah i've been a major reason 
or a major I've played a major role in people discovering you yeah. know Medina Bay Sheikh Ibrahim Nias and the history the legacy of Islam in West Africa because I was one of the first people like UK British born people to go there and study there or meet the Shuf there and um, right. yeah and I introduced a lot of people to them and you know yeah it's just a uh, it keeps on growing and growing yeah. from there it's cool yeah. to see that happening alhamdulillah yeah it's a good it's a good it's a good thing it's a very very good thing because i feel like the islam that is needed especially in this day and age can be found in west in the west african tradition because you know islam was spread in west africa through education through mm. trade and through manners it wasn't military conquests it wasn't yeah aggression Which it was so interesting i find yeah. that that's kind of amazing and but, they preserve their islam in that way and also like gender interaction and there's so many issues that yeah. we have in the west that the islam the way it's practiced in west africa and it's not unorthodox it's within the tradition and it's justified right. by you know maliki interpretations of sharia um but it can adapt to our lifestyle in the west and it can give us a kind of islam that we need in order for Islam to move forward in the West. So I feel like, yeah, mm. people going to West Africa and seeing how people approach the deen there, it can be of tremendous benefit to people here. And a lot of people have seen that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, so I've been reading about Nana Asmao and mm. she's genuinely, she's probably one of the most inspirational people I've read about because she, for people that don't know, she was the daughter of Usman Danfodio. He was the one who established the Sokoto Caliphate and he always encouraged his daughter to pursue her own um, scholarship and to become learned in her own right, which she did. Um, and if you just look at the roles that she fulfilled, it's kind of incredible because she was a scholar and a teacher, a community leader, a mother and a social activist. And I just think there's so much we can learn from her life. Um, and then talking about the Sokoto Caliphate, I just find it really interesting because it's a really good example of where worldly power has kind of manifested through a movement that was rooted in spirituality and egalitarianism, social justice, things like that. And it's kind of a rare thing. So, yeah, 100%. I mean, the Sokoto Caliphate is a, it's one of the first instances, though, where you do see military conquests used to spread Islam in West Africa. Mm. But even then, it wasn't an aggressive military conquest. It was a self. It was due to self-defense because Usman yeah. Danfodio was a scholar, and he was the son of a scholar, and he had a community of students that grew very, very large, and they were practicing their deen. You know, the women were wearing hijab, the men were wearing turbans. They were studying yeah. the Quran. They were studying Islamic sciences, and the king of the time became very scared of his power and influence. And so he started to launch attacks on his community and his students. And so Usman Danfodio proposed to them that, look, either you let us practice our religion in peace or we will go to war with you and take power from you in order for us to be able to practice our religion But they were all peace. Muslim though, right? They were all yeah. Muslim, yeah. But you had Muslims that were actually practicing and then people who were just Muslim by name right. but were still mixing Islam with traditional beliefs, still worshipping idols and still doing, you know, things that and they and they did not like the authority that the new religious leaders were gaining because they were similar to kings because you know mm. the only power they had before islam were kings and you know rulers traditional rulers whereas now you're seeing scholars who have a thousand people or ten thousand people at their beck and call so the kings felt threatened by that um so yeah so he established yeah. he fought the authorities that were oppressing him 
and he established education. And one of his main his main fights was female education because yeah. he noticed that in his society, women were not being educated. He issued fatawa like saying that women have the right to leave their homes in search of knowledge and women had the right to, you know, everyone had the right to education and you can divorce your husband if he refuses to teach you. And, you know, very radical, what, what was deemed as radical feminist kind of fatawa for yeah. that society in that time because no one was empowering women to the level where you can you can come out of your father or your husband's authority and seek knowledge that was a yeah. very dangerous idea in society I think in at some the time. places that would still be considered radical today <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah. many many places so he trained his daughter the same way he trained his son because his son Mohammed Bello took over the empire after him um, and their descendants are still ruling the Sokoto Caliphate until today um uh, now oh, I it's didn't part, that. yeah yeah so the sort there's a sultan of sokoto now in nigeria he's the great 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 grandson of usman danfudio oh, okay. and uh, the empire still exists and in northern nigeria but they've just formed like an allegiance with the nigerian government so they're still respected as traditional rulers and they still have it's kind of like how the queen is here there's like the federal government and then the queen the monarchy still exists yeah it's the same in northern nigeria they have the federal government but they also interact with and respect the authority of the traditional caliphate and the king and the emirates, the kingdoms that exist in northern Nigeria. So that still exists. Um, but Nana Asma'u was trained just as well as her brother. So she was a poet, she was a scholar, she was a teacher, and she started a female empowerment and education movement called Yantaru. And Yantaru, what they used to do was they used to teach women, educate women, and also economically empower women. So they would raise funds for women to start businesses, microfinance, all of these kind of schemes that we feel are modern schemes and mm. modern modern things that are introduced to empower women in third world countries. Nana Asma was doing them 300 years ago in her yeah, father's empire. Yeah, and it's a it's a tradition within West African Islam because it's not just Usman and Fodio. If you come over to Senegal, you see, for example, there was the Sheikh Sheikh Ahmed Bamba in Tuba. He was in the 19th century, early 19th century, he trained all of his daughters as scholars the same way he trained his sons. And a lot of them became very big sheikhs with authority, thousands of students. He, uh, he also came from that tradition because his, his, major, his first major teacher was his grandmother, Sohna Astowalo, who had a farm, she had a school, which she used to teach men and women, and she had thousands and thousands of students, her grandson, Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, being one of them. Um, so he came yeah. from a tradition where women were respected as scholars and as authorities, and he raised his daughters as such. Even to recently, there was one of his daughters. So he had a daughter called Sohna. Sohna means like Seda or like it's a title for, for an important woman. Okay. He had a daughter called Maimuna Al-Kabir, and she was known for her Quran memorization. So she memorized the Quran and he used to make them write the Quran from memory, Baqarat and Nas, and give, give it to him as gifts. His children all used to do that. So she wrote seven Qurans from memory for her father wow. and gifted them to, her, to him. She also used to write poetry. She also used to teach. She also had like a large following. And she had a younger sister who was named after her because when there was one day Sheikh Ahmed Bamba received a Quran from her as a gift. And then one of his wives also gave birth that day and they brought the baby to, to him to give to give the baby a name. And so he said, today I received a gift from my daughter Maimuna, so I'm naming my new daughter after her. So you had my Kabir, the big Maimuna, and my Sagir, the small Maimuna. 
Oh. And Zohna Maiseghir became one of the most popular figures in Senegal because she used to host, like, every 27th night of Ramadan, she had what they called Laylatul Qadr. She used to host it in her house, and then it kept on growing and growing until it became, like, a celebration where tens of thousands of people would come to her village that she had established to 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 celebrate Laylatul Qadr with her. And she used to give lectures there, and she used to, you know, host, you know, yeah. tens of thousands of people. And her younger brothers, who were the shuyuk and the authorities of the of the father's movement, the Muridiya, which is the most influential religious movement in Senegal, they all respected her as an authority over them. So they all used to visit her in her village and seek dua from her. And, you know, there's many pictures. It's in my presentation. I, sh- I show pictures and videos of that of that happening. Um, and then Sheikh Ibrahim Nias as well, who's like my personal, like, Sheikh, my family, my... Yeah, my his family are my shuyuk, my teachers. He trained all of his daughters to become scholars just as his sons. And so you have amongst his daughters, like Seda Maryam Nias, she's done like Al Jazeera interviews and she has like a Quran school in Dakar that has over 10,000 students. Um, and she had strong relationships with like King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, King King Hassan of Morocco. Mm. And she was always invited to Islamic conferences and she was a very prominent, she still is a very prominent figure within the Muslim world, like the wider Muslim world. She had all of those relationships and all those opportunities because whenever her father used to travel, he would make her travel with him and he would include her in all of his plans and he would, you know, he taught her and he raised her to become a scholar the way he was. She also has a sister, Sayyidah Rukhaya, who's the same. She wrote, she's written books, she's an author. There was a year in, I think it was 1962, when the UN did a conference on women's rights. He told his daughter, the Western world are doing conferences and writing books on women's rights so we as muslims we need to do a book we need women to write books on the rights of women within islam and i want you Mm. to do that so she wrote a book about the rights of women within islam from quran from hadith from the opinions of the scholars and it's a book that's studied and then sheikh ibrahim also had communities that he converted to islam in ghana he sent Sayyidah Rukhaya as a teacher to them. So they were new Muslims, thousands of new Muslims. Like the British yeah. government document an occasion where he converted 5,000 people to Islam in one time. That new community of new Muslims, he sent his daughter to go and teach them the deen. Wow. And he has another daughter, um, Sayyidah Umul Khair, who lives in Niger. She married one of his students in Niger. And um, she has like a women's only movement called Ansariya to Deen, the helpers, the female helpers of the religion. And they have like an annual conference that they do in conjunction with the government there. And it has over 20,000 members. And they have, you know, not just religious programs, but they also do, you know, medical aid and they also do financial aid and they do community work. And she was recently recognized by one of the American Ivy League universities as being like a prominent global citizen for the work oh. she's doing in her community. so And he had That's daughters amazing. that did the same in Mauritania, in Nigeria, because he, he had the biggest Muslim movement in West Africa. And he made sure he trained all of his daughters and sent them and married them off to like his prominent students in all of these countries in order for them to help their husbands. So as their husbands were dealing with the men, they could also deal with the women and the men and the children and raise them and educate right. them. So, yeah, West African Islam, the tradition there, has always been one of female empowerment, putting women forward. And you always see prominent female teachers and, you know, women who 
women who are giants and who do more yeah. work than a lot of the men. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. the stories are incredible, honestly. Yeah, yeah I'm doing and, that. I and I've been how... blessed to meet meet them, so that's something like I've seen it yeah. with my own eyes. Like I've spent time with Sayyid Sheikh Maryam, I've spent time with Sheikh Rukhaya, I've spent time with the family of Sheikh Umu Khairi. You, so should like, write I about, know... you should write about those <laughs> experiences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coming soon, inshallah. It's coming soon. I'm working on something. Yeah, it'd be really cool to read about it. You're like an encyclopedia, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's just experience. Like, I travel a lot and I spend a lot of time with them. So I try and absorb as much information as possible. Yeah, it's really cool. I was going to say, some of the people you've mentioned, what I really love is how they were really educated in their deen, but they also had um, a means to make money as well, to like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, because you need both. You yeah, of course. You, know, you can't just like rely on one, but there's such of a lesson course. there for us all. Um, yeah, because you see like in West Africa, most of the Shiuch do business, most of them are farmers, yeah. most of them have, yeah, different means yeah. of, yeah. I think and that's the way, really important though. The way the tradition that it would traditionally work was Shiuch would have farms and then the students that come to study with them would also work on the farms as a means of payment. Um, and khidma and service and then they'll sell the produce of the farms in order to support the school and to support their lifestyle that was yeah that's a big part of the west african tradition so you learn not only do you learn knowledge but you also learn service you also learn hard work you also learn how to you know yeah interact in society thank you so much for talking (laughs) to us about this i would love to talk more um, no problem. No maybe problem. we can do we... another episode at some point. Yeah, no problem. I'm free anytime you need me. Inshallah. Sounds good. But also, um, you're going to you're traveling more, right, in West Africa over Rabia Lawal? Yes. So I am going to. So I have my tour coming up in October. Then in November, Rabia Lawal starts on the 10th. I'm having an event in London in Rumi's Cave, Inshallah, like a maulid here. And then after that, I'm going to head to. Senegal first, and then Mauritania, and then Nigeria. Sounds good. <laughs> so I will document it all, inshallah, for sacred footsteps. I know I've yep. been I've been promising for ages, but now I actually have the time and the and the and the opportunity. So yeah, I will make really sure I document. Yeah, the Maulid celebrations in Senegal in Medina Bay, which is one of the biggest in West Africa. It attracts people from over you know twenty countries all over the world. And um, then the Smiley celebrations again in Mauritania. And then I'll also be visiting Nigeria to deliver some lectures, my Biambula presentation. Um, so whilst I'm there, I'll visit, I'll try and visit Sokoto, I'll try and visit Kano and like the traditional Islamic empires there in the north before I go to Lagos to do my um, presentation. I'll try and document all of that as well for you guys. Oh, inshallah. yeah, that'd be amazing. That'd be really yeah. cool to see. Inshallah. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem, no problem. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about Islam in Africa, check out the reading list compiled by Mustafa Briggs on our website. You can also find out more about Mustafa's upcoming lecture series, Beyond Bilal, via the link in our show notes. Let us know your thoughts on the episode on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd be really, really grateful to hear your feedback. Join us for the next episode as we speak to Sacred Footsteps writer Afak Ali about his travels to Iran, his visit to the resting place of Imam Ghazali and our upcoming Sacred Footsteps tours to Iran.